Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 19. My name is Rick. I'm uh, author of, well, I guess you could call it a bunch of books that somehow, someway have Jesus as the focus of them. A lot of them actually have the words Jesus-centered in them. I was the editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which I know many of you listening already have a copy of that. And in October, um, maybe the uh, sort of the the mountaintop of my writing life, I released a daily devotional called the Jesus-Centered Daily. So if you haven't yet nabbed a copy of that, it's a, it's a great time during the summer when we're living a different kind of pace a little bit to start a devotional habit in your life. And I just want to invite you to check out the Jesus Center Daily as a possibility. If you like this podcast and you want to grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus and explore his beauty from 352 different vantage points, uh, this is for you. So I'll put a link to the Jesus Center Daily on the podcast episode page for this episode. Um, Again, this is season six, episode 19, and it's the second episode in a new series I'm calling The Harvest. So we know that obviously that fruit comes from a tree. Um, And typically each individual tree produces an individual certain kind of fruit. You remember that Jesus, one of Jesus's primary metaphors for his relationship with us is He's invited us to attach to him like a branch attached to a vine or a tree. So when we attach to him, we get his life flowing up through our kind of dead branch, bringing life into our deadness. And the ultimate result of that life flowing into us is fruit. If fruit just happens naturally when you're attached to a source of life like Jesus. So what kind of fruit do we produce? Well, it turns out the tree of Jesus produces lots of different kinds and species of fruit. He's not a one one fruit kind of tree. He produces lots of it. And what we're going to do is explore each of these fruits uh, to not only uh, taste and see what that fruit is like when we taste it in Jesus, but how does that show up in us as well as we grow in our relationship with him? So we're going to explore each variety of fruit and then simply track it back to its source in the tree, who is Jesus. So in this episode, we're going to explore the fruit of service. So think about uh, the last time you had a good customer service experience or an example of bad customer service. So go either way. Think about um, either the first good customer service experience that pops into your head or the first bad customer service uh, example that pops into your head. While you're thinking about that, uh, I'm gonna give you a couple of examples from my own life, one of each. So a good example of customer service was just yesterday when uh, our whole family was on a uh, mission service trip to Camp Barnabas in Missouri. It's a camp for special needs adults and children. 
And while we were there, um, my youngest daughter, Emma, uh, well, basically messed up her glasses. <laughs> she, she uh, I don't know what she did, but she broke them. And they were fixable, but for some reason, the little screw that went into her temple on her glasses would not go in. I tried and tried and tried, and I failed. So when we got back, um, I took them back to the place that we bought them, and they said, oh, that, that screw is a special screw. Um, we don't even have that screw here to fix it with, and it takes a, a technician, actually, to insert the screw. I'm like, wow, that is some great little screw there, some rare screw. So they suggested lens crafters. Um, why don't you go to lens crafters because they typically have this little screw and they can put it in for you. So, so I did not buy these glasses at lens crafters, but I took them there, explained to them the problem. And the, the guy said, why don't you have a seat? I'm going to take them back to our technician. And I think he can take care of this in like five minutes. Sure enough, five minutes later, he comes back with the fixed glasses and the sweetest words known to mankind, no charge. <laughs> so I was there with my older daughter, Lucy, and as we were walking out of the store, I said, you know, Lucy, that's an example of customer service from a company that really wants you to come back and buy from them because they left a great impression with us and they saved our tushies because they fixed those glasses with this rare screw and didn't even charge us for it. So we left there with this really great feeling about lens crafters. So here's a bad example of customer service though. Uh, the other day I had to call um, an investment bank uh, as part of uh, what I do as executive director of Vibrant Faith. We, uh, we do large scale research projects that are funded by the Lilly Foundation and so we get um, a big check from the Lilly Foundation that, that carries over throughout the three to four year research project that we're doing. So to park that money while we're over the course of those years, when we're doing the research, we park it in certificates of deposit. And we had one parked at a bank and it was coming due. So we had to cash it out and get a check from them. But the check that was supposed to come, and it was for a very large amount of money, did not come. And while I was away on this service trip, I told my team, if it doesn't come when I'm gone, then we got to call them and find out what happened to it. Sure enough, it didn't come while I was gone. So I called the bank when I got back. And uh, did I mention this was a large sum of money? <laughs> well, they didn't seem to know where that money was. They had no record of it. And I'm new in this position. And so it turns out I wasn't yet listed on the account. But because of that, they would tell me nothing, absolutely nothing, not even who was listed on the account. And the whole experience was, you probably have had this familiar experience before, where somebody says, I'm going to put you on hold when I go check something out. That ha happened about three or four times, and I'm just waiting for them to figure something out. And every time she came back, she said, um, well, I found out some things, but I can't tell you because you're not on the account. <laughs> so by the end of this time, I, I finally exasperated, said, this is a very large sum of money and we don't know where it is and neither do you right now. So I need to know what to do to find out what happened to this money. She was just very evasive. And I get that I'm not on the account, but 
instead of recognizing how stressful this was for me, she just was like impenetrable. (laughs) So that was frustrating and left a bad taste in my mouth about that place. Not because they didn't follow the right uh, procedures, but because they didn't recognize that how stressful this was to not know what was happening with this money and, and just kind of strung me along. So there's a bad example of customer service. We've all had both good and bad ones, but why do we tend to be impacted more by the bad customer service experiences than the good ones? You know, I, I, I think we can probably remember more clearly the impact of a bad customer service experience. It's almost like when you've had um, a bad breakup <laughs> or a bad experience in a friendship or relationship, it's, it's hard to forget those things. Or when somebody says something to you that's cutting and hard, those things tend to linger with us the same way a bad customer service experience does. And, you know, bad customer service is not only, does it not only linger, but it's kind of iconic. It's the source of, of lots of sitcoms have, you know, they've take up this, this bad customer service narrative line because it's funny. Few things get us really worked up more and being served badly, it's, it's what you might call one of our human pet peeves. And um, I was reminded of that sort of human pet peeve in a classic scene from the uh, old sitcom Seinfeld. Uh, we're going to listen to this. I think those of you who, um, who uh, not only are fans of the show, but just are awake and alive in the last 10 or 15 years, you'll recognize this particular scene. This scene and this episode became iconic in in um, uh, this classic sitcom series Seinfeld. So let's let's listen to this scene from Seinfeld. Now we got to go to the soup place. What soup place? Uh, there's a soup stand. Kramer's been going there. He's always raving. I finally got a chance to go there the other day, and I tell you this: you will be stunned. Stunned by soup? You can't eat this soup standing up. Your knees buckle. <laughs> there's only one caveat. The guy who runs a place is a little temperamental, especially about the ordering procedure. He's secretly referred to as the soup Nazi. What? What happens if you don't order right? He yells and you don't get your soup. What? Just follow the ordering procedure and you will be fine. All right, all right. Let's, let's go over that again. All right. As you walk in the place, move immediately to your right. The main thing is to keep the line moving. Right, so you hold out your money, speak your soup in a loud, clear voice, step to the left and receive. So right. It's very important not to embellish on your order. No extraneous comments. No questions. No compliments. Oh, boy, I'm really scared. Blame. Really? <laughs> Medium turkey chili. Medium crab bisque. <laughs> Didn't get any bread. Just forget it, let it go. <laughs> yeah, I think you forgot my bread. Bread, two dollars extra. Two dollars, but everyone in front of me got free bread. You want bread? Yes, please. Three dollars! Nothing for you. Good afternoon. One large crab bisque to go. 
Right? Beautiful. You're pushing your luck, little man. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there. Um. Uh... Oh, oh, oh. One Malagatani and um. What is that right there? Is that lima bean? Yes. Never been a big fan. <laughs> um. You know what? Has anyone ever told you you look exactly like Al Pacino? You know, son of a woman. Hoo -ah, hoo -ah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. You know something? <laughs> no soup for you. Come back. One year. Next. Come on. Leave. Get out. But I didn't do anything. Next. <laughs> Hello. You think you can get soup? Please, you're wasting everyone's time. I don't want soup. I can make my own soup. Five cups, chopped porcini mushrooms, half a cup of olive oil, three pounds celery. This is my recipe for wild mushroom. Yeah, that's right. I got them all. Cold cucumber, corn and crab chowder, mulligatani. Mulligatani. You're through, sweet Nazi. <laughs> no more soup for you. All right. Yes, over the top. Uh, but the question underlying all this is, is serving others a natural thing that we do or is serving others unnatural? Meaning, do we naturally uh, try to meet the needs of others, try to look out for the needs of others and meet them? Or is that something we have to grow into or learn or be transformed into? And I guess another way of saying that is, is service necessary for the survival of the species? And therefore, it's motivated by self-interest? Or is service not really necessary for our survival? And is it an example of something else? Can it be prescribed and learned, for instance? Can you be trained to serve as a discipline, or does it have to be heart-motivated? These are all things that... Um, that are interesting for us to explore because service, um, service to others, I'm not sure I'm on board with this just naturally happening in us, that we're naturally other-centered. I think service to others comes from a different well. So um, we're going to explore all of this through the lens of Jesus. We're going to explore an iconic encounter he has with, with his disciples where service is the theme. And I think we can explore this, these, these bigger questions of, is it motivated by self-interest or from somewhere else by leaning into this story that Jesus um, has with his disciples. So, so let's find out and let's explore some context about the practice of washing feet in ancient times. Uh, now you know where we're headed with this story, um, right, uh, right before Jesus goes to the cross at the quote-unquote Last Supper, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. But before we dive into that, let's think a little bit about the, this practice of washing feet 
you might have been a part of a foot washing ceremony before you've seen one, or you uh, most certainly, if you've grown up in the church, you know this story. But like a lot of stories of encounters Jesus has, we think we know the story until we slow down and pay better attention to it. I think that's the case with this story too. So it's really crucial with this one that we understand some of the context of washing feet. Why was it necessary in the first place? Well, um, most people wore in, in Jesus' time wore shoes that made it easy for your feet to get really, really dirty. It's not like they were paved roads. They were walking on dirt and, and they were walking with uh, shoes that were open to that dirt. They were not closed shoes for the most part. They were just sandals. That meant pretty much everyone had dirty feet. And um, so it was important as people came into homes, especially as guests, that their feet be washed and cleaned. And it became so important in that culture that the ceremonial washing of feet was, it became kind of a sacred thing. But who did the washing and who didn't do the washing? Well, uh, the cultural expectations at the time meant that only slaves ever washed feet. Only people of the lowest of the low washed feet. This form of service was the, the, the least desired way to serve another person, was washing their feet. Um, if you think about what a cultural equivalent would be in our time, um, probably the, the thing that comes to mind, the closest thing that could be compared to somebody whose job it was or role it was to wash feet would be a garbage man. So it's a person that you see come by and pick up your garbage in a truck usually, and you expect good service. You don't want garbage to be on the ground after they've taken your garbage away. But we don't often think about what it would be like to be on a garbage truck all day long and to deal with other people's garbage day in and day out and the expectations that come with it. And the, the people serving you by picking up your garbage we mostly uh, at our maybe the top end of our response to them is we're grateful and appreciative and we say so to them. At the bottom end, we just simply don't even recognize them as a person. It's just some, some entity providing a gross service for us that, that we're, we're glad they're doing it, but you know we, uh, we would expect nothing else from our garbage men than to pick up our garbage. And we don't really think about what would that feel like to be them. And we have this sort of innate expectation that people who pick up garbage think that that's basically what they're meant to do. Um, therefore, we never feel uh, any kind of uh, real compassion for people that pick up our garbage because we have this interior expectation that, well, that's, that's, what, that's what their life is all about, is picking up garbage. So you get a little bit of a picture there of what foot washing would be like in the time of Jesus. Only people who are slaves, only people at the lowest rung on the cultural ladder were the foot washers. So with that said, let's read this account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John 13. I think that will help to understand maybe a little more deeply some of the emotions that come out when Jesus does this extraordinary thing. Now, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to think about the heart of service in this story, in just what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples. 
And to do that, you're going to have to put yourselves in their sandals. <laughs> you're going to have to imagine yourself with their dirty feet and coming into this setting with the expectation that somebody here, but most certainly a slave and no one else, is going to be here ready to provide this service to us. It's almost like they arrive to this, this meal together. Um, and if, if you arrived at someone's house or maybe an event center or something like that, and you suddenly encountered a pile of garbage at the front door, your first reaction is, well, where is the garbage man who's supposed to be picking this up? You would never think, I'll pick up all this garbage. Uh, you're, you're thinking about, well, where's the person who's supposed to be doing this? And that's where the disciples are at. Their feet are dirty, and they're looking around for the person who's supposed to be doing this. So let's read this story. It's from John chapter 13. It's verses 1 through 17. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Again, John 13, 1 through 17. If you're not driving right now, you want to flip over in your Jesus-centered Bible to John chapter 13. It's the first 17 verses. Here we go. Before the Passover celebration, so again, they're in Jerusalem, on, and Jesus is on his way to the cross here. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So, so I'm just going to pause there. That's a big word, actually, the start of verse four. So, that means that everything that was said before the so is setting up everything that follows. It means because of this, therefore. So, it's very important in verse four to pay attention to the so, and we'll get back to that in a minute. So, here we go. So, he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now, you can just imagine that this group of, of friends just stunned. They'd seen Jesus do many, many things that blew them away and upended their expectations. But this one they did not see coming. Um, and you, you can imagine them all just sitting there in stunned silence. What is he doing? Um, Peter, though, is not a guy to just sit in stunned silence, as we'll see as we pick up in verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, Peter, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who's bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. 
I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. All right. There we go. Such a charged encounter. It's interesting. I just have to point something out really quick at the start. When Peter, when, when Peter is responded to by Jesus, when Jesus says, uh, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me, Peter his heart overflowing with passion says, then wash all parts of me. So he was very unwilling to let Jesus wash his feet because of what metaphorically that meant and, and the position that places Jesus underneath Peter. It was just offensive to Peter that Jesus would lower himself to that level. It's just dishonoring and disrespectful to accept that kind of blessing and then Jesus says, you won't belong to me unless I do this. And Peter's just like, okay, then wash every part of me. So Peter at first misses, misses the point here. Uh, it's not really about whether all of him is clean or not. It's that the position that Jesus is taking relative to the disciples here is what he wants them to come away with. So let's, let's dig a little deeper into this. Um, so uh, let's start off by, by asking my so question before. So what's the significance of the so in this encounter? That means, again, something that happens before that so is the reason for everything that happens after that so. So let me just read to you before the before so part again. Before the Passover ce celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and returned to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So the first thing that we see before the so is that he loved his disciples, and he had loved them at every moment, in every encounter. And now he was intending to love them up until the very bitter, excruciating end. So because it was time to eat, um, and it says the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus knew. So that's the second thing before the so. Jesus already knew that the plan was in place to betray him. So the, the to the very end meant this is happening right now. This is the very end. This is the last time Jesus is going to be with all of his disciples in a relaxed setting. Then the, the last so, uh, the last thing before the so is that Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So Jesus understood in this moment that he had authority over everything. He was relaxed in his identity. He was not insecure. He, he was relaxed and, and secure enough to take on the role of a slave in this moment. He did not need to prove anything to anyone. He was not desperate to show his authority and power and position. None of that mattered to him because he already knew who he was and what his authority was. And he also, it also says that he had come from God and would return to God. He knew who he was, what his foundation was, and that after all of this happened, he was going to return back um, after the three days in the tomb and his resurrection, he would return back to his close fellowship with God. All of this to say that unlike us, who for us, position, authority, esteem, 
how do other people see us? Um, what, what sort of positional authority do we have? Are we being treated well? Are we being disrespected? If somebody treats us below our station, um, we, we would get frustrated and upset and even feel like we're being bullied in some way. For Jesus, none of that mattered. He was already certain of his identity and of his authority and of the love that his father had for him. And he was also determined to love his disciples. And this was the most loving thing he could do in this moment. So, <laughs> so what did he do? He gets up from the table. They must be thinking, what is he doing? What is he going to do now? He takes off his robe. So now, now he's, he's not clothed in his robe. He's clothed more like a slave. He wraps a towel around his waist um, like a slave would do. And he pours water into a basin. So while he's doing all this, the disciples are watching him. They're like, what, what is he doing? And then he takes that basin and begins one by one to go to the disciples, washing each of their feet and then drying them with the towel he had around him. So he's not only washing their feet, this towel he has wrapped around him has their wet feet, their, the, the, the whatever dirt remained on their feet that he wiped off with the towel, that dirt's on that towel, and he's wearing it. Um, that's what happens after the sow. His response to intentionally love his disciples is to put their dirt on him. It's a foreshadowing, really, of what he does on the cross, where he takes our metaphoric dirt and puts that on himself. Here, he puts their physical dirt on himself. Um, and he lowers himself because of his security to simply serve because there's no one else there to do it. And obviously, none of the other disciples have volunteered to wash the feet of everyone because that would then immediately place them at the lower rung in the disciple uh, sort of pantheon. So nobody wants to be considered the least of these amongst the disciples. So there's nobody volunteering to wash their feet and there's no slave there to do it also. So Jesus does what's necessary. Jesus does what a servant does. And what is his motivation? It's not for himself. That's the point. So if we go back to... Um, if we go back to one of our original questions is what is our, what is the motivation to serve? Is it natural or unnatural? Um, where do we get the impetus to serve? Where does that come from? Um, you know, one way of thinking about it in, in uh, the group that I lead with young adults, we were pursuing all of this as well. And one of the young adults in our group said a profound thing. He said, it's natural to serve your in-group, but it's unnatural to serve your out-group. Meaning if, if you have friendships and relationships, it's more natural to want to give to them. But it's completely unnatural to give to those who are outside your in-group. That's why when we think about Jesus as standard for love, um, it, the best way to describe that standard for love is that Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for the people who persecute us. That is the kingdom of God standard of love because it reflects the very love of God. 
who loves his enemies every moment of every day. In fact, we are actually his memories. I'm sorry, his enemies. At times, we are his enemies. And yet he continues to love us no matter what. And in, in this environment, um, Jesus here is, is also washing the feet of the man who would betray him and lead to his crucifixion and death. Judas is one of those that gets his feet washed. So imagine what that what was like when Jesus is going around the circle, um, washing each disciple's feet, and he comes to Judas. Does he treat Judas any differently? Does he wash his feet any differently? No. They're embedded in this very act is the standard of the kingdom of God when it comes to love. Jesus there serving even his enemies, taking on their dirt as well. So there's the first part of that, that story. But then the next question is, well, what does Jesus mean um, when he says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Unless you wash me, you won't belong to me. Well, maybe one way of, of unveiling that is that our relationship, our willingness to receive what Jesus has for us is an act of vulnerability and humility. So for us to say, um, I am because of you, um, I only exist and have an identity because of you, then our humility is what um, opens the door to a deeper relationship with Jesus. If we are unwilling for Jesus to, uh, to metaphorically wash our feet and allow him to see our dirt and to clean it up, if we won't let him do that because of um, our pride or we don't want that kind of vulnerability, we don't want to expose to him our dirt, or we don't want him to go that far, you know, as long as this relationship with him is comfortable and, and uh, doesn't upend any of my expectations, um, then I'm good with it. But what happens when Jesus says, no, I, I want all of you. I want the deepest kind of vulnerability. Will you allow me to do what seems inappropriate for me to do? Uh, will you allow me to serve you in this, in this way? Will you accept my, m the gift of grace that I'm giving you? And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? In our culture, um, in our church culture in particular, we talk a lot about grace, but we actually don't live it very much because our form of acceptable grace really is always grace that is a fundamentally earned in the end. We'll accept grace as long as we have this inkling inside that there's something in us that really deserves that grace. But what, of, what about the unmerited grace that Jesus offers us? Um, how can we stomach the offense of being given grace when we actually really don't deserve it? When there, it's not a mutual act of love where one person loves because the other person also loves but what happens when we receive the love of Jesus, when we have nothing to give back to him, when our, when our reserves are empty, 
um, when there's really no way for us to earn what, what he's given, will we allow ourselves to be loved when that love is completely grace? That's, that's really what Jesus is asking Peter to accept. Peter, the bold uh, sort of, um, he's not a, a rebel. He's just a man of action. He's a man used to doing what he needs to do, but he's also quite aware of the cultural strata of Jewish life. And um, he'd be fine if someone else wanted to wash his feet because that would reflect back the stratas appropriately. But this, this is unmitigated, unmitigated grace. How can someone, how can the Messiah, the King stoop to wash my feet? Um, that doesn't compute. Uh, that's not right. And so uh, Jesus challenges Peter to accept the grace of what he's doing, the unmerited grace, the offensive grace that Jesus is offering. And then the last question I think is good to explore in this story is, well, what does Jesus mean by this metaphor that a person who's bathed is already clean and only needs their feet washed and you are already clean? What does already clean mean? Well, um, that I, I think uh, the easy connection we can make here is that Jesus has made his disciples already clean, just as he has made us already clean. So we are bathed, I guess, metaphorically. His sacrifice has caused us to be clean. But that doesn't mean that um, that fundamental grace doesn't wipe out the experience we have of Jesus on a regular basis, on a daily basis, where we accept the micro graces of our, in our relationship with him. So when he says a per person who's bathed is already clean and only needs their feet washed, that means that that lowest of low acts of service, the, the washing of feet, will we uh, fundamentally look into Jesus' eye, Jesus's eyes as he is bending over to wash our feet and say, yes, Jesus, I invite you to take my dirt and wash those feet off in, um, in this extraordinary act of service and put my dirt on you. Yes, I will. Um, more than we understand, that is an act of vulnerability that invites deeper relationship. It invites the kind of vulnerability that an all-in relationship is typified by. And what Jesus wants is an all-in relationship. He wants all of our heart. And in a counterintuitive way, um, him doing what only a slave does, taking on the person's dirt onto him, him doing what only a slave does requires an act of vulnerability for us that we never saw coming. It means that we embrace grace at a deeper level than we are now. So the question is, what is Jesus communicating about the motivation for service in all this? What is he communicating? Um, what lesson does he hope his disciples take from this? And what will motivate them to follow his example? So Jesus here, uh, it, when he's communicating about the motivation for service, we already know 
that because it starts off this way in the before so part of this this story, we already know that his motivation for service was love. He had loved them at every moment, and now he was determined to love them to the end. And service then is always other-centered and motivated out of this heart of love. Do we have this naturally? I don't think so. I think we have this motivation for service as part of the renovation of our heart that comes when the branch attaches to the vine. We get the life of Jesus and the heart of Jesus when we're attached to him. And that's the only way we get it. So what's true is that when we become more deeply attached to Jesus, a natural fruit of that attachment is the fruit of service. This bubbles up in us, not as a discipline, not as a supposed to or a should. It comes because we are, have started to taste and share the, the flow of love that comes out of Jesus' heart flowing through our own heart. And we, we have this sort of unnatural motivation to serve others in our life when there is nothing in it for us. Does it mean that, wow, you're simply a mature person? or you, you've just disciplined yourself to serve other people, or, or you're a people pleaser anyway, so you want to serve people anyway. No, that's, that's not what's, what's coming out of this communication to his disciples. He's saying at a fundamental level, the only way you can be secure enough to serve in this way, the people around you, is if your motivation comes from a higher place. Um, a, a place that transcends position and authority and pecking orders, that, that your identity would be wholly connected to who I am and what I think about you and what I say about you, frees you then to serve in whatever way you can. Um, I saw living examples of this when I was serving for a week at Camp Barnabas. At this camp, uh, each, each counselor, they call them a missionary, they're all teenagers at this camp. So they get a little bit of training and then they're set loose to spend 23 hours a day with their assigned camper. And in our case, during the week we were there, they were low on counselors or missionaries. And so each of our uh, young people was assigned at least two campers. This had never happened at the camp before. And what I saw during that week was kids doing things that in normal life, they would consider unbelievably gross or inappropriate, and they would never do it. Um, so many things they needed to do that uh, revolved around um, accidents campers had, or inability for campers to go to the bathroom alone, or inability to, to, to kind of take that a step further, inability to wipe on their own when they do go to the bathroom. So what would motivate a teenager to assist in a setting like that? Well, in my view, the, 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 this service experience that we all experience together is such a powerful transformation experience because they, they, they have to sink their roots into the heart of Jesus in order to do these things, because there's really nothing in this for them. They're doing something that they could never imagine doing, but here they begin to live out the heart of Jesus with other people in, in a way that reminds me of what Jesus is trying to say here that our humility is the open door to depth in our relationship with him. So what will motivate, motivate us to follow Jesus' example? 
Well, our love for Jesus will motivate us too, because it's our love that attaches ourselves to him. And as we love him and experience that attachment, we get his heart of service toward others. It's a heart that is perfectly content to give and not get anything in return for it. In fact, it finds life in doing that. It finds some of the rhythm and breathing of the kingdom of God when it does that. It's a, it's, it self-perpetuates because we're breathing the oxygen of the kingdom of God when this is what our service looks like. So rather than to close off here, rather than to fuel our service with a false or temporary momentum of a should, for instance, why don't we instead simply ask Jesus to give us a heart and a lens for serving, a nudge in the moment to worship him, to express our love to him by simply finding ways to serve and especially ways to serve where we don't get credit or esteem or position or really anything out of it. Wow, what opportunities for us to live out our worship and to witness to his the transformational love in our heart from him than by serving and receiving the service of others in an atmosphere of grace. There you have it, gang. This is uh, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's season six, episode 19. You can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for that episode, season six, episode 19, for links to anything we've talked about today. And this is a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you again soon.